Hello and welcome to the Friends in Football podcast brought to you in association with Ladbrokes. My own name is Gavin Casey and this is a brand new Balsarly podcast on our football podcast feed. Here you'll also find the Balsarly football show where our guest this week was the ever-entertaining former Ireland international Stephen Hunt. Uh, Hunt, he gave a bit of a tell-all about his old writing teammates and yeah, in case you were wondering... Andre BK is indeed an absolute lunatic. Uh, to tune, tune into that, you can subscribe to our football podcast on iTunes by simply searching Balsarly Football in iTunes and then clicking Podcasts. It's also available on SoundCloud and various other podcast providers. But today, it's all about our new pod, Friends in Football. Uh, the premise is quite simple, really. Over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be joined in studio by some of the most entertaining and fascinating names from the beautiful game on these heroes. And they have been tasked with choosing their best friend from the world of football to join us on the podcast for a few top, top tales. Uh, in the coming weeks, you'll hear from former Ireland star and current punditry sensation Keith Andrews. We also recorded our friends in football with Sky Sports Spanish football expert and extremely unspanish looking man, Graham Hunter. But to kick us off in style, I'm del- delighted to announce that the star of our debut Friends in Football podcast is none other than Chelsea legend Pat Nevin. And equally exciting is the fact that Pat has got his best mate from the world of football fellow Chelsea icon Graham Lasso poised by the phone in London. Uh, all of this means is, uh, well, not for the first time this season, I've been relegated to the role of the third most intelligent person on a Balls of Day football podcast. But without further ado, it's time to chat with Mr. Pat Nevin. Take us back to where it all began for you. I mean, even uh, as far back as going on trial at Celtic and sort of being told you're too small. Yeah, well, it's more than trial. I was signed as a schoolboy uh, for Celtic. Um, but I had no interest in becoming a footballer. Um, I loved doing it. Um, I seemed to be doing quite well. I was getting player of the year every year. The pre- players of the year before me at Celtic Boys Club at that level were people like Roy Aitken, Charlie Nicholas, Tam Burns. Paul McStay was the one after me. You know, they all got into Celtic. Um, yeah. But when I got to the age of 16, they said... Uh, we don't think you're going to be tall enough, um, so you should probably sort out your education. To which I th- I said, yeah, I agree with that completely, because I'd never really wanted to be a footballer. I know it sounds strange now, and kids listening now think, eh, what are you talking about? I played football for one reason and one reason alone. I absolutely loved doing it. I loved the creativity of it. Uh, I, I liked the competition element of it, um, and I liked actually that I was pretty decent at it. Um, the idea of doing it for a job, uh, it really didn't cross my mind. My entire family had went on to university, uh, doing degrees, etc., and I didn't see any reason why I should be any different. So when Celtic let me go, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and went, yeah, good, I'll come and watch you every week then. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was my idea. So it's not as devastating as maybe it would have appeared for a man who's so fond of Celtic at the time? No, no, not, not in the slightest. No, it didn't even colour my views towards the, the club in any way at all. You know, I And I did. I started going to see them. I started back again going to see them. I'd always done so as a young kid. I think my dad was disappointed. My dad had always felt, although never really said, that he felt I was good enough. And many years later, I found out that he told um, my brothers and sisters that he thought I would play for Scotland and this when I, when I was about 11 or 12 um, and they all just laughed at him and if I'd have known I'd have last, laughed at him and told him off yeah. um, and in the end he was he was right you know and this is really really weird that he could see that early on having said that I've only given part of the story there he said I would probably play for Scotland although he would have preferred if I'd have played for the Republic Fair enough. Yeah, I'd, have had, a, that, I'd have had that choice. Seems <laughs> like a missed opportunity for us there. I don't know. <laughs> I where don't the, know. It's uh, Jack's time. Where I the, don't know if I was his style. <laughs> where were the granny rule lads when we needed them? No, back? well, there was quite a few at the time. There was, I yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that was certainly a possibility. But, you know, for all the fact that I spent a lot of time in Ireland, um, I'm, I am Scottish and I always was Scottish, and uh, that was who I wanted to play for. Did you ever play against Celtic Fortlight? No, I played against Rangers um, and Celtic. I played, we're under 21s once and I scored a couple and I got a couple of uh, raised eyebrows at that point in time. Um, but friends of mine were playing against us and to be fair, all the way through my career, Celtic tried to buy me back. You know, and every club that I was at, from Chelsea to Everton to Tranmere, they tried to buy me. You were the Scottish yeah. Paul Pogba. Uh, it was very weird. It was very strange and had nothing got to do with me that never actually happened. Um, and I can remember actually one game up jumping all over the place here, but 
Uh, I was playing in a game for Scotland against Estonia and I scored a couple of goals and <coughs> made the other goal uh, for my mate Brian McClare. And uh, as I scored the second goal, I was running back and Paul McStay, our captain, runs up and goes, sign for us, you. Make it quick. <laughs> and it was lovely because they had people like you know, Tam Boyd at the time, certainly Paul himself, um, and players that I really would have liked to play for, but it never quite happened. And so when does it become a job for you or did it ever become a job for you playing football? I mean, when you'd sign professional deals and whatnot, that is your, your full-time employment. No, that, to my that's probably the core question to my entire career. So you've got there quite early. Um, oh, this could be a very short podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a core question, the reason for it. Um, so I was all right. I was probably quite a decent player when I was at Celtic. But what I, te- what I then did is I started doing the degree. But after a very short time doing that, I was playing boys club football as well with a team called Gatkosh. And we played a youth game against what I thought was Clyde Reserves. And the Clyde manager, I had a bet with, uh, you're not allowed to bet in football anymore apparently, but I had a bet with my mate and the bet was an album. Who could score the the best goal and beat the most players scoring it against this team? So me and my mate, who were both playing certain midfield at the time, we had this gamble on it. Uh, So I beat about five players and scored and he had to buy me an album, buy me an LP. Uh, What I didn't realise is the... It wasn't Clyde's reserves, it was Clyde's first team we were playing against. <laughs> and their manager grabbed me as I walked off and said, Would you want to come and play for us? And I said, well, no, not really. I'm, I'm doing my degree. <laughs> I have an album to listen to here. <laughs> exactly, I've not bought the album yet, I need to buy it today. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, what are you doing? I told him I was doing a degree. And he said, well, we're part-time, you just need to train with us twice a week and play on a Saturday. And I went, I don't know, I, I love playing football. And he said, we'll pay you. And I went, where did I sign? Um, you know, and he said, I said, look, I'll come along. And I went along. And that manager was Craig Brown, who would on to be the Scotland manager. Yeah, of course. Yeah. He dragged me in. And uh, that was, you know, I was starting just after my first year uh, doing the degree. At the end of the second year, I was sit- I was then signing for Chelsea. So it all happened in a blink of an eye. 18 months. It was just about 18 months between playing boys club football and signing for Chelsea. Uh, and... Again, it was no expectation that I would have a great career there or anything. I was bought for buttons um, or get in the first team anytime soon because I was a kid, I was really young. And I got in the first team by fluke after a couple of weeks. Never got out. When, when, <laughs> you, when you say by fluke? Um, you... Well, the manager the manager seemed to rate me quite highly. Um, I'd left Clyde. I'd, to be honest, I'm probably underplaying it a little bit with Clyde. I'd, I'd actually got player of the year in the division. I'd got yeah. Scottish Young Player of the Year. I'd got... I went to European Championship and got played a year as well, yeah. Euros, so there's quite a lot kind of happened in that kind of short period of time. And why that the original question was a core question is because I knew I could fail because I had a backup. So there was no need to play through fear. There was no need to worry about failing. So I was able to carry on playing through the joy of it, through the love of it, through the creativity of it. And it confused the living daylights out of any manager I, I worked with that I didn't seem to ever talk about, you know, the finances or, you know, having a, a career or anything like that. I just wanted to enjoy kicking a ball. And I realised very quickly that it made me better. It made me a far better footballer. And it's one of the great lessons that I've learned. Um, and I'm going to drop a big name here. Um, <laughs> the filmmaker Ken Loach is has become a friend of mine over the last number of years. And Ken, I did a programme with him a while back, I was making a documentary. And he explained something to me about creativity. Uh, and creativity will never, ever be as good when you're doing it through fear or doing it for any other reason than for the love of something. And it seems such a simple thing, but it's absolutely true. So I'm, you know, I've just, he told me that recently, but I'd learned it inside my head anyway. So when I'm playing with Clyde, then I go to Chelsea. I don't care. I've, I'm dedicated. I work harder than everyone else. You will find quite soon that I went back and trained every afternoon when I was with Chelsea. Nobody else was coming back except certain individual fullbacks that I made come back with me. Um, but it's because I love doing it. you know. And so you can be dedicated, relaxed, keen to do the best you can, be creative, and that whole mix, just it just didn't seem to fit right within football at the time. But I thought it was perfect. 
and then what happens at Chelsea? I mean, you talked about the rapid prog- progression you made at Clive, but like everything happened at Chelsea very quickly as well. Like from uh, almost a media promotion to from the yeah. second division to the first division and madness. I mean, I mean, total madness. I mean, the first year promotion, win the league, and I get Player of the Year, and you're thinking, hey, actually <laughs> slightly unfair in me. I'd been in the game only two or three years professionally. I'd got young player in Scotland. I'd won two promotions. I'd get player of the year in my new club, and I'm thinking, this is a piece of cake. This, this is dead <laughs> easy. So this is the way it's going to be for the rest of my career. Um, and it did It did come very, very easily. Um, but I think that's because of the hard work and things. When I went down there, I, I discovered that I was fitter than anyone else. I'd been a distance runner. My dad had worked me hard. Uh, so, you know, there, there was no date. There was no problems. You know, the, the size thing actually helped me. Technically and technique-wise, I'd worked so hard on my, my dad as a coach. My dad had coached me with teams, but also individually. For And the 10,000 hours argument you often hear, well, I'd gone well beyond that. Seven miles beyond that between the 10 or 13 or 14. Yeah. The hours that I'd put in with skills and tricks and, you know, understanding that. So I'd, I had a lot behind me, but also had this fearlessness behind me. Um, so it went really well with Chelsea. First year, as I say, player years. Second year, I'd only signed a two-year contract. So you send a two-year contract and you, you look around and think, well, wait a minute, what am I going to do at the end of that? I, my idea was to go back and finish the degree, to which, which horrified Chelsea because they, obviously they could see the pound signs in front of their eyes. They're going to lose you're, this. you're in the middle of a title race as well that season. Yeah, we got, we got that season. But uh, so what happened is the chairman came to me and uh, Ken Bates and he said, right, okay, why don't you sign a new contract? And I said, well, that's nice of you. And he said... Uh, what do you want? And I said, well, you're offering me, you should make me an offer. And he said, no, no, that's not how it works. You have to come in and put an offer with what you want. I went, well, I don't know what I want. I might go home. And like, look, the confusion in his eyes was hilarious. He's like, this does not compute. Don't understand this. Don't know where this is coming from. Is this a, is this a plan he's doing? Is, is he playing a game? He was trying to, I wasn't. I was just being me. If I went back up to Scotland, I'd have got a club somewhere and I'd have played and I'd have enjoyed it. Anyway, next day I had to come in with a piece of paper. So I had a white A4 sheet and I had written on it what some of the players had told me to ask for. So was, I think it was, I'd been on £180 a week and considering my rent was 100 quid a week and I had to pay tax too, I wasn't financially doing that well. But we win all the time, so the bonuses were very helpful. Anyway, I took this sheet in and I sat down in the office and there's Ken and he looked at the sheet, scrunched it, read it, scrunched it up, threw it in the bin, stood out, walked to the door, slammed the door, jumped into his Rolls Royce and drove away. And I'm sitting in his office thinking, well, that didn't go very well. He didn't even say hello at any point. Um, so I did what everyone else would do from my end of Glasgow, east end of Glasgow. I rifled through his drawers <laughs> and uh, got all the contracts, done a, an average of them all, and came in the next day and told him I wanted more. Um, and he said, he, he went mad at this point, and he said, what the hell, nobody's on that. And I said, no, they're not, but that's the average because I went through your drawers and I found out and he was unbelievably impressed. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he gave me a <laughs> right on the nose. And oddly from that moment on, because I had the cojones to stand up to him, he, he, him and I always had a great relationship. Absolutely nothing in common, but we had a brilliant relationship. And what also helped is the manager at the time, John Neal, he really rated me. And he would say things, I mean, this skinny wee guy, walking in and he would do the whole team talk and at the end of it he turned around and go right okay lads and if you give the ball to Pat you'll win and like this 19, 20 year old you know just in the team and you'd think with a lot of other burly old pros they'd get a bit miffed with that mm. uh, but no they, they, I don't know why but they all seem to kind of accept me as a weird curio that they kind of had to protect slightly so they were okay with it and uh, it went well for Probably three years, you know, it was great, but there was a change of manager, that team broke up, and it was a shame because it was very close to being a really spectacularly good team. We were chasing, as you say, for titles, you know, from nowhere, from yeah. absolutely nowhere. We bought Kerry Dixon, who was scoring goals, we became an England international. David Speedy was Scottish international. I got to Scottish international. Every, all the way through the team, was it was a superbly structured team. And like 1985, 
as in you'd, you'd won promotion by winning the second division, but 1995, you're there, thereabouts, in the first division as well. Yeah. You finished sixth ultimately, but it was only a couple of poor results towards the yeah. end that cost you. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'll be honest with you, I've, I don't look at my history that closely. One day when I'm a bit older still, I'll get around to it. Um, but my memories were that we probably had a couple of injuries. Um, the manager had to step back a bit, uh, John Neal, because of a heart attack. We also, I think probably, for me, the core was we lost a couple of individuals who weren't first-team players, but were the correct moral backbone of the team. And it has to be the biggest character, it has to be the moral backbone. And when some of them left, particularly a guy called Tony McAndrew, who went on to run the Aston Villa Youth Academy and yeah. developed a lot of players. Um, and the people who took over as the strong characters weren't as good as personalities, as a core group. They were more individualistic, they were more self-centred, and the, the group ethic was not exactly lost, but faltered. Uh, add on to that a very simple thing like uh, Eddie and Ed Zwicky, our goalkeeper, who was world-class, and he was world-class. It's a shame because people don't know, because there's probably only one goalkeeper that could have kept him out of international football at the time. Unfortunately for him, he was Welsh, and that goalkeeper was Neville South, yeah. <laughs> who was playing in front of him. So we lost him to a terrible knee injury, and we never quite replaced him. So a number of things happened at the same time. Manager, a couple of players, the core of the group, and it suddenly didn't feel as, as good anymore. Uh, we're still a good team, we're still, but it, it wasn't quite what it had been before. Still, for a couple of years, I think, right, we were right up there, top six, from absolutely nowhere. Because Chelsea, the year before I came, they nearly went down to the third tier. I yeah. mean, within a goal, within a Clive Walker goal, I've gone down to the third tier. And when things weren't going so well then, did it ever dawn on you that, you know, maybe I've had my fun and now is the time to go back to Scotland? Or at that point, were well, you Well, funnily good? enough, Celtic had tried to buy me while I was there. Um, and I'd actually met one of the directors. I can say that now. Um, and Tapping up procedures. Yeah, it's now, Statute of limitations Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and I'd just said to him, look, make a bid. You know, if they accept it, it's fine. Um, and he's, what about money? And I went, well, look, I'm not, I'm not greedy, you know, just pay me what I'm getting paid just now, we're fine. And I got a phone call next to you, you're not a greedy boy, are you, Pat? And I went, look, just, I'm not one, just pay me what I'm one just now, don't make a big deal of it. Anyway, it never happened. And that was the first of the three times that they came in. So by that point in time, I wasn't getting disillusioned because I'd kind of fallen in love with Chelsea and the fans, uh, not the nutcase lunatic fringe fans, who I couldn't stand and had mental rows with. Because um, at this time I was working quite heavily anti-racism campaigns and I'd started a campaign and that wasn't going down well with that kind of group of people <laughs> very well there was a few threats issued by them um, but the vast majority of Chelsea fans were brilliant and they were fantastic to me kind of misunderstood as a group because of that one lunatic fringe it was and, and many clubs are like that everyone thinks oh that group of fans are nuts well in actual fact look at them the vast majority of them are mates of mine I know that they're perfectly fine but the, the loons are the ones that get uh, get all the coverage. So I kind of wanted to stay to try and make it right again and hoping that with the new management and then a coach come in uh, in my fifth season there and the team wasn't doing well and it was really crashing. Uh, there was no confidence about the team but yeah, I think it was coming from not necessarily the manager but the coach. And the coach once said to me, uh, if you take any more than two touches at any one time, I'm going to substitute you. And I thought, right, well, I think I need to leave now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Springs is under everything, I presume, does it? Uh, and at that point in time, I just, I, I didn't get angry. I just thought, I know there's a lot of teams that are playing that, that type of football, POMO, the uh, position of maximum opportunity. You know, and it was successful for some teams, you know, and Wimbledon were doing it, Palace were doing it, Watford were doing it. But it's not me. Yeah. You get somebody else to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'd rather not play. You know, I'd rather go and do something else. So... Just at that time, Paris Saint-Germain came in and it was all agreed that I would go to PSG. And I thought French football, quite interesting. Hanging about in the left bank with the artists, much more interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like my kind of thing because I had lots of our literary, literary interests. Um, so it was all sorted out for me to go uh, with the agent. My contract was gone. I was running out. I knew I was leaving. I wasn't offered a new one because they wanted the money. Uh, and then just at the last minute as it was all about to go I got a phone call uh, from Everton and I went oh alright then because uh, we're a great team 
you know, there's you meet people and you kind of form a sort of attachment and an understanding for different reasons. But you always have to keep your eye out for working with good people. Yeah, um, which which leads us on nicely, I suppose, to your friend in football. Graham Rousseau, pleasure to have you on the line. Um, how do you know this man to my left, Mr. Pat Nevin? How do I know, Pat? He was my mentor, which I think was the start of where it all went wrong. <laughs> I take <laughs> no, full Pat, responsibility. I, Pat, yeah, Pat looked after me when I was a, a young player at Chelsea and uh, made me realise that um, I could be successful, I think, as a player, even though I had slightly different views maybe or shared similar views to him um, sort of outside the dressing room and off the pitch um, and he was obviously a Scottish international legend at Chelsea so I realised that I could be myself and still make it in the game I think without Pat I would have uh, I wouldn't have had somebody to look up to in the same way yeah big time like we might get to that like your shared views in a couple of minutes but one of the things that sort of struck me when I was looking this up I would have presumed that you played together in at least one season but Graham you weren't in the senior team when Pat departed for Everton. Yeah, that's right. I think Pat always told the story about me that he we used to stay behind after training and it was quite a rarity back in the sort of late 80s for players to sort of stay on the training pitch and, and after training and do a bit extra. And Pat was always sort of keen to sort of develop his his sort of um, skills as a, as a right winger. So uh, he recalls the story uh, which, you know, reminded me in later years that uh, that he would ask me as a younger player to stay out with him and he started to get a sense that I was getting better and better and stopping him more and more often. Um, Very so quickly, whether that had anything to, to do with him leaving, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Oddly enough, before Graham, there was a guy, um, John, um, oh, God, I've forgotten his name now, that's terrible. Um, John Miller, yeah who was the yeah. left-back, and uh, I'd gotten very well with John, but John left to go to Hearts, so I had to find someone else that I could work with. And uh, So the times that we had, because you couldn't do it all the time, because there were games on. Um, mm. And to be honest, it was, it was great then to find somebody who was one of the young kids coming through, because I had no different views towards, you know, someone who's a first-team player or a second-team player or a reserve or a youth. It didn't matter. You know, was somebody, A, sort of willing, B, any good, um, and see, you could, it was nice to actually somebody you could relate to as well. And it was quite clear early on that Graham was intelligent. Um, it was interesting character as well. Um, but it's quite a funny story you usually tell. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much of it's made up, and I think Graham's alluding to that there, and I think you're right. Um, I often <laughs> tell people that after about four or five weeks, I'm thinking, why the hell can I not get by this kid not knowing this is next England left back that yeah. I'm playing against. How am I? No, I've just got a kid here. Um, so it was, it was really good, you know, to, to work with somebody who was so keen to learn and so keen to learn different sides of it because Graham immediately, you're supposed to be a left back, but then when he would go and run at you with the ball, you think, actually, you're hell of a good at that as well, pretty damn quickly. Uh, remember, I don't know if you remember, Graham, there was one uh, particular one I used to work at sometimes with you. In fact, we did it at the pitch on, on Stamford Bridge quite a few times. Mm. You used to put out some cones and I had to get by you through the two cones, but you had to get by yep. me through the other two cones. And it's amazing how much you can learn about that from the whole game, just from that, putting those parameters in place. Yeah, absolutely. And it must have been beneficial for you, Graham, as well, coming up from... Uh, oh, massively. To, to play with a massively. man like, like Pat... Uh, it- Sorry. It was really a case of it was really a case of I I came to Chelsea having just finished my A levels and I just, just had this complete thirst for for learning. Um, obviously, that I think comes from your background as much as anything. Where you know if you if you're in a learning environment from a young age, you you're open to to trying things new and you're not you're not sort of embarrassed to put yourself into situations where you might be shown up because that's the only way any of us develop is through learning from mistakes and being in an environment that stretches you. So. As soon as I came to Chelsea, obviously I had that that hunger, and I, I gave myself two years. The, the club, I don't even know if Pat knows this. When I when I sat down with with the chairman and Colin Hutchinson, the club secretary, they offered me a three year contract, and I'd just come over from Jersey. I'd had no experience of contracts, and and I looked at them and I said, "Look, I'm really sorry, but I can only sign two years." And they thought I was so so arrogant <laughs> or cocky. And I said, "Well, that, it's got nothing to do with that. It's just I can afford to waste two years. I can't afford." to waste three years so the basis of that was that I was giving myself enough time to see if I was any good at it and knew that if I wasn't if I wasn't improving after two years then I wasn't going to improve after three years and I could just sort of say goodbye to my dream and and live in the reality that I wasn't going to make it as a football player so when I then started training and everything I was really hungry to to learn and, and you know it was a great honor really for, for a first team player to 
to, and I know Pat didn't look at players differently, but there was a lot of that in within the game then as well. There was a lot of status, and it was very hard for younger players to connect with the with the first team. You'd maybe argue it was even more so now. Um, but you know, to have that opportunity to learn from and put myself up against a, a Scottish international football player um, who who had so much ability was, of course, it was a an opportunity to 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 really develop and, and it had it played a major part in I think the speed in which I I learned that side of the game. Big time. I think like it's to anybody who's listened to the start of this conversation between myself and Pat, it's going to become very apparent why the two of you are friends and both of you are very keen to learn and have an enthusiasm for education. Like Pat, you uh, I think you wrote recently or not recently but in the past or at least spoke to somebody where you said that because of your sort of university background and interest in the arts and theatre that you'd get some of this abuse from you know the lads in dressing rooms and obviously Graham you've had similar experiences um, possibly on a grander scale with similar issues but it seems to just stem back to the idea that both of you maybe read the Guardian and and have you know an enthusiasm for education yeah it's just being an outsider um, and you have to be confident enough it's a wee bit easier being an outsider when you're pretty good I have to, I'll be honest with you. Mm. Looking at back now, it's a wee bit easier if you're pretty good. If you're an outsider and you aren't any, any good, then it's going to be tough. There was a guy who was at Chelsea, and I, I don't know if it's just before Graham's time, um, but he came in and he was, <laughs> I don't know how you delicately put it, you would call him a Hooray Henry, right? It was a Sloan <laughs> Ranger, this kid, right? Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a bad player, but okay, yeah, I, I can't, I can't really do that, okay, yeah. <laughs> And like, and can you, you, Graham, you're just thinking back to that dressing, thinking, no, um. Speedy, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> so, and I remember after, and I tried to kind of befriend him and help him a little bit. His dad had given him a restaurant in Notting Hill. It's kind of that kind of background, right? And I was trying mm. hard for this kid, and I was, I was kind of failing for him, really. It just wasn't happening. And I didn't know why. The reason was he probably wasn't good, good enough. And he ended up getting physically chased out of the ground. Out of the training ground by one of the players when he, wow. he said he wouldn't carry on because hey, my hands are cold now, you know. I thought, and it was kind of effect, but it was just, it, it was just, it wasn't the effect side of it. It was actually just he was too posh. I mean, and he was stunningly posh, but it shouldn't make any difference. Obviously, the hilarious thing about it and the, the, the rider to it is, many years later, maybe seven or eight years later, I was sitting watching the telly one night and there was an advert on. I don't know if they get it here in Ireland, but do you know the advert for Lontheric? And as a guy, yeah, yeah as a, and it, well, as a girl walks past and he sees the girl and runs and buys her some roses and chases after her. That was him. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> he became a male model. He looked like David Bowie, only better looking. <laughs> and so in the midst of all that, the reason for saying that whole story is the fact that, you know, to be an outsider's heart within any organisation. And we kind of make light of it now. But for Graham and, and for myself, there were there were times when it was hard. But I think maybe it was a wee bit easier for me, Graham, with my background being rough East End of Glasgow. <laughs> it mm. Probably was. I'd I'd had all that. You were stuff used to it already, were you? From the age of about six or seven, you know, gang fighting and all that. I wasn't involved in it, but it was all around me. So mm. it was a wee bit easier that I just laughed at them people. Was yeah, it? and for me, it's funny because I, I, you know, I I felt coming in at eighteen, I I, I didn't have any apprentices around me that I'd grown up with who'd got to know me and obviously wasn't I didn't feel like a professional player when I got sort of um you know helicoptered in not literally helicoptered in because that doesn't that doesn't do the image that good does it no wonder you didn't fit in you came on a helicopter (laughs) (laughs) um but the the fact was that you didn't you know you didn't really have a natural sort of group around you um as allies um so that made it quite difficult and I was uh, I mean, you're obviously the same, Pat. You've, you've got to be pretty thick-skinned. Right. If you are going to stick to who you are and really be true to yourself, you've got to be prepared to sort of defend yourself and sometimes, you know, get, get involved in a bit of a um, scuff, just mm-hmm. to uh, scuffle, I should say, just to, just to sort of stand your ground. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I always had was, was that sort of little bit of anger. I lost my mum when I was 13, and, and I think that that inadvertently really gave me that that fight um inside so i would i would not let anybody spoil it for me even though at times it was very very difficult in those early days and as pat rightly says you you have to work you have to be even better than the people around you i think to compensate for your differences um and it took me those early years and then once i started playing more regular first team football 
that people they probably didn't change their opinion about me but they accepted that actually I was a good good member of the team to have on the pitch because I could make a difference was this side of it uh, something that you two had ever discussed or was it just an intrinsic sort of acknowledgement between the two of you? I, that I, you think, there's a, I think there's a kind of nod of understanding mm. between Graham and I. Just about most of the things we see, we talk about that. You, you, we actually don't need to say it because we all mm. we went through exactly. so many similar things. I mean, we should sit down. I've promised them for coming on today. I'll take them for dinner one night and we'll have a chat about it uh, next yeah. time we're in London. But absolutely the case that it's it's understood it's accepted you know where the difficulties and where the pain is and you know uh, the, funnily enough Graham talking like that Graham was feistier than me you know mm. I'm, I'm getting angry if someone got at you I did exactly the opposite I was extraordinarily calm and looked down on them as if to say I'm getting them all high ground here I don't need to involve yeah. myself to your level now there's no right or wrong way to do it there's just a, meth- a coping mechanism a lot of the time and that's mm. the way to do it like Graham, I suppose there's abuse for being different, and then there's the kind of apparent abuse that you experienced. I got that before him. <laughs> give us yeah. it. Don't get throw that all in Graham. Well, I just we really, did, I can't. We did I mean, touch on it. I mean, that's how I introduced. <laughs> I was considered. Entire... Come, I remember you go down to West Ham. You know, you you, yeah. you know where it's down. Run, but I don't know what. Particularly going with you, it was a, you run out in the far side. If you were playing in the left-hand side down in that corner. If yeah, you ever went, run. Oh, my God, the sticky you would get down there. And a few of them. And it, to my, calling me gay was the lightest thing that I was ever called there. And particularly if I turn around and blow them a kiss, that would really, really annoy them. I kind of act it up a wee bit. And my attitude was, think what you like, you know. It's, but I kind of just laughed at them all the time. You know, it's, it was a... But Graham... You, they shouted things like you, but they, by that time, football was getting bigger, and they put it in the paper. Yeah. Are you jealous? Exactly. You seem a bit jealous. It, it, it escalated, and I suppose again with with the way I, I basically had to, it became a national story, didn't it? And mm. a, and a massive rumor, and and it terrified me a little bit. I think you know when you when you saw what Justin Fashioner had gone through, and then obviously the the um, you know his, his suicide and, and what have you, and I think there was a. I think the agenda was moving then. There was more, there was a bit of a, conf- there, were, there was a, seemed to be, you know, more conversation about, you know, gay rights and, and equality. And I think that in some ways that created more tension because it, there had to be a point where something broke. And, and I suppose from my point of view, it was, def- it was defending who I was and feeling, actually feeling quite vulnerable because I thought if people really did believe that, and it's a sad thing to say, but you think actually that could that could hold your career back because if if people within football f- believe that they might not sign you they might not they might think actually let's go for you know let's go for somebody else um, and it was a pressure it was a pressure that I had to deal with which was fine ninety five percent of the time but then there was the odd, the odd occasion well documented occasion where actually it it, it 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 tipped over into something that again my reaction God I wish it had been like yours Pat that I'd been able to just maintain <laughs> but, my cool and and laugh it off. Um, and and sort of deal with it that way, yeah. but as you rightly say, I suppose it's a, you know different different um, mechanisms, um, and I dealt with it in a way that seemed uh, well, it wasn't rational. I didn't think about it, but it was just my reaction to to that to those sorts of things. You, at I, some bet you point forgot, in I bet you've forgotten, Graham. Over. I bet you've Sorry? forgotten the fact that I phoned you really soon after that. And I can remember where yeah. I was standing when I phoned you. It was in a golf course in Wishaw in Scotland because <laughs> I was so upset for you that that had gone mm. on. And I kind of, I wanted to share it. And I wanted to say, like, you know, but at the time, I remember, you were so annoyed and upset about it. I, I don't know if you remember what I said. I'm vaguely, yeah, I do. Yeah, just saying, look, you, you're miles above them. You're mm. so far in the right. You, you don't give them any any rope whatsoever because and of course yeah. 10 years on we know that and they would those all all those people apologize now and all look stupid yeah. now um but at the time to be honest it was that but it could have been anything if you're on the front page of a newspaper or a back page mm. of a newspaper people do outside football don't understand the pressure of that it really yeah. people camping in at your door mm. Maybe camping wasn't the right word to use it so you can you can actually have jokes like that but you know it doesn't matter what it is I mean I watch some of the guys under pressure now and it may be just losing the job or a betting scandal or something like that whatever it is if you happen to be in front of that bus as it's hammering along the motorway and it hits you it's hell isn't it it's a horrible horrible place to be 
Yeah, Graham, Definitely. Graham, I want to obviously talk about your, the, the football side of things as well. But one thing I was kind of keen to clarify, having uh, read a few things earlier, did Robbie Feller ever actually apologise for that incident in 1999? Yeah, 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 he did. did. And, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm really glad that he did because it closed the matter for me. Um, and, you know, he's such a, a legend of the game, Robbie, you know, obviously with his, with his reputation at Liverpool and the, the fantastic player that he was on the pitch. It had, an, it had a massively positive impact, actually, him actually at some point saying, do you know what, I was, I was out of order. And that dissipated any of that lingering um, excuse, I suppose, that certain very small-minded people had towards me, even though you know, I've been retired for 12 years. Um, so, so it's amazing the impact that, that any person in the spotlight can have if they, if they stand up and... and for, you know, stand up for something or adopt a certain attitude towards something. Um, it, it's very powerful because a lot of people that look up to those, um, you know, in, in this case, you know, sports people and say, well, actually, if they, if, if they think it's all right, it must be all right. But equally, if they say, look, this is fundamentally wrong, then it also it, it changes the attitudes um, at a much more sort of... Um, I suppose organic level, you know, and and that's some that's a lot of you know there's been a lot of work in in football um, to change attitudes to 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 sort of deliver I suppose a, a wider um, equality agenda I suppose that we'd expect in every every walk of life and and I have to say we're get we're getting there and that's that's for me one of the positives of of what I'm involved with now is you know I do a lot of work in inequality um, all across sort of you know. Um, people's differences um not not purely to do with you know their sexuality but it's you know it's it's been a real privilege for me and and it's actually what i've been through and 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 what pat said he went through it to be able to sort of come through and then actually have an impact going forwards is is um you know a really important thing to be able to do 100 percent. it's uh like do you so do you feel as though there is being enough or enough being done at the moment um, well, there, there's a, you know, you have to change um, attitudes, and that takes time, unfortunately. Um, and and so, you know, dragging people al- along with us to change their attitudes and educate them away from a certain type of behaviour is difficult, and it doesn't happen as quickly as as any of us would like. But there's there's a reality there where you have to people have to understand, I think, sometimes the damage of their words or the dam- damage of their attitudes, and and. Um, if you just force them to behave in a certain way, it doesn't mean they're actually changing their attitudes. It just means that they're, you know, that they that they're, they're underground. Um, and actually, in a funny way, I'd rather people were um, sort of outwardly offensive because then at least you can expose them and deal with it. If 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 they're harbouring these sort of feelings and beliefs and they're not talking about them or not get it, not giving given the opportunity to to show their ignorance, then it's quite hard to change it. And, and actually, you know, all the, all the rules and regulations um, within the FA now are, are so supportive of, of diverse cultures, backgrounds, and, you know, whether it's religious, whether it is, you know, um, people's sexuality. Um, and, and obviously, you know, women in the game now is, is a, big, a big area that have been working on for many years. Of course, there's a long way to go, but I, I, there, there's some great work being done by some, a lot of sort of unsung heroes. Graham, can, can, I, can I ask you one question in the midst of this? Mm. We, we might find someone where we slightly disagree, finally, <laughs> but I don't know if we will. <laughs> I don't know if we will. Um, I've qu- thought for quite a long time now um, that any time I've been talking in, in the forums about you know, any gay players, because people say there should be a percentage of gay professionals mm. at the top level, I've always constantly said, come out, it'll be fine. It's not going to be a yep. problem. Within the game, it'll be absolutely fine. You'll get some supporters that'll make a lot of noise, but you can't blame that in the game. As you walk into a dressing room, I think it's going to be absolutely cool. Can yep. I tell, you agree with, with, with I'll give you well, a little... I, I do, and it's funny because I remember doing. I remember speaking at an event that the Football Association and um, some of the, the, the gay supporters groups put together called Football versus Homophobia, and that was probably about six or seven years ago now, and I, I was asked this question, and then I said I'd, I was concerned. I'd be concerned for a player. But now, in, within the last couple of years, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the change has been... As, as I think we've gone beyond that sort of tipping point now where um, players' attitudes towards gay, the potential of a gay player, I think is much, much different. So therefore, the dressing room is much more accepting. Um, I think there would be a lot of support 
from um, from people within the, the broader context of the game. And that's that's all I've ever said, really, is, look, I... I really, I, I, I don't want there to be a witch hunt for a gay player. It seems yeah, like, you know, well, there's got to be one. Let's turn all the, you know, all the furniture over and find a gay player. That's not the point. The point is, is that the environment is such that if there was a gay player and he decided that he wanted to come out and felt confident enough to do that, that there was a support and a, a, a sort of a protection almost around that player to be able to deal with it because the, the, they would have to have broad shoulders because they would get so much attention. It could be positive attention. Mm-hmm. They'd get so much attention that, they would need to, to be able to or need to be ready to deal with that. And it's interesting because Thomas Hitzelsberger said that it wasn't that he didn't feel comfortable coming out. He just didn't want that as a distraction. He wanted to be the best footballer he could yeah. be. Didn't wait to be defined. Concentrate on that. Yeah. Um, but he didn't say it was because he was worried about how the dressing room would accept him. He felt exactly what you've just said, that they would be fine. You know, just before we go off that subject, um, I'll tell you a story, and it's, sadly I can't give you the entirety of it, but there, I know one player, who, uh, an ex-player, who is, is gay and is out with his friends, he's fine. Um, but uh, I was with two teammates who we all played together, and we were told just about a couple of years ago that he was. And the reaction from the three of us was hilarious. I went, really? And my mm. other friend said, oh, that's interesting, you know, it's, you, now that you think about it, you know, consider it. And the third one said, yeah, he did dress a lot better than us, didn't he? And that was the level. That was it. That's the level. And it's, to, to get it right, that's where we are now, and that's where we're going to be. Yeah. So it's good. But it's, it's back to those things. We, we, Graham and I had lots of things in common. One of the things is we get thrown into things that we didn't choose. Yeah. I didn't mm. choose to get so involved in anti-racism campaigns right at the start. But... I've become completely synonymous, synonymous with it for you know, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe even 30 mm. years now. But you d- I didn't ask for it, but when the question was asked, yeah, I'll stand up. And sadly, Graham, you got to do that too, mate. You have no choice. Yeah, <laughs> have no, you been given a doctor that for it yet? With you with Paul Cannaville, yeah. you know, when you, when you stood up for Paul Cannaville, and I don't know what year that was when, when you scored. It was 84, it was 84, yeah. Yeah, I mean that was that was one of the most incredible bits of of sort of television for me from a football player. Uh, your your attitude towards that, and like you say, it's because it's because you stand up for what you believe in, and you don't mind if if, if it's going to offend someone or go is be be seen as sort of anti-establishment. That's not the point. You're not there to defend the establishment in that situation. You're there to stand up for one of your colleagues. Um, and you t- you know it's you, you risk taking. You, you you know you're taking risks. You know it's not going to be popular, but you know it's right. And um, oh, you know that that for me will always will always stand out. I suppose on the football side of things, uh, gr- mm. well, no, I mean football was easier. <laughs> well, no, I mean I brought it up. I thought I think it's interesting. I mean, actually, one one thing I would I would uh, like to add to that, or at least uh, throw it back at you guys, is Graham, your point that Thomas Hitzelsberger didn't wish to be defined as a, a gay footballer. He just wanted to remain a footballer, regardless of his uh, sexual preference. It kind of reminds me of. There is a cork hurler, um, which is a, a hurling, obviously being a sport over yep. here, called Donalo Cusack, who uh, came out a couple of years ago, and his Twitter bio is just "I'm a hurler," even though he is sort of defined now as the man who came out. It, he mm. still, and he, he look, he is incredibly outspoken about the issue, but ultimately he just wants to be kind of known as a sports person yeah, rather than a gay but, sports but person. But you don't always get the option of how no, you, of why not. you're known and for for yeah. what reasons. I would quite like to be known for things that I'm not known for. You know, but mm. you, the media will decide. You know, you just live your life and the media will pick up and pigeonhole you where they want to pigeonhole you. And so will people. And I think it's actually harder now in the, the age that we're in just now with social media. Um, you will get pigeonholed in certain things. Uh, and you have what you have to accept is well, my way around it, and I don't know if Graham uses this as well, but my way around it is think of that person almost as a, not you, as a third person of not in an arrogant way, but a Look, you don't know who I am. That's that's just a kind of something that's almost put in a wall, a picture of you. People who think negative things of you for a variety of reasons that they've read, then they meet you and they think, oh, that's nothing like you at all. You have <laughs> to remember it's not you. It's a, mm. it, it is their, a, their perception a, of you. Absolute perception. Yeah. It's, you know, and don't get too uptight about it. You, you, you won't really change it too much. All you can be is yourself. Well, listen, fo- being a football player, and I can say this now that I'm at, uh, out the other side of it, um, I, I wish that we looked at players and we, we encourage players to think of passing the baton on in, 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 a, in, a, in a better way than, than maybe we've, you know, we haven't focused on that. But, you know, I, I look at 
you know, I've already spoken about the influence Pat had on me and, and, and other players through my career as I was learning the game have on you. And, and passing on that experience, of course it happens. It happens a lot. But, but, but that whole mentoring and, and it actually being a bit more uh, thorough, I suppose, and thought through, I think is a, is a really important, important part of, of, of a club, particularly in an era where we look at football clubs as being commercial entities and maybe the connection between the fans and the players isn't as strong as it was in our day. Um, you know, the, the gap seems to have got wider. But, you know, I think it, it's not so much me having an influence on this general. I think everyone that went before me has had an influence on everyone that came sort of after them and before me up to the point where, you know, I established myself at Chelsea and it was my responsibility to to be the best I could, but also then to, to encourage the younger players that were coming through. So, you know, things like the good things that I learned from players like Pat and the attitudes and the the, the sort of the responsibilities you ha- you should take as a as a as a player, um, absolutely you you pass on and equally, and I don't know if Pat's the same, but all the bad experiences I had as a young player, I said to myself, do you know what? When I'm when I'm an experienced player, I'm never going to treat a younger player the way I've been treated by some of my sort of some of my fellow professionals. So you have an opportunity to break the cycle as well and change the culture. So. You know, we, we all passed the baton on, and I was fortunate, I think, it, from that 97 through to 2003, where we had a fantastic run um, as, a, as a team under Hullet, Viali, and Emanieri. You know, we won League Cup, FA Cup, um, Cup Winners' Cup, and Super Cup. Um, so in, the, in terms of the, 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 the success mentality, successful mentality that, that we were starting to develop there... Um, yeah, that had a you know that had had an influence on 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 those guys coming through and the John Terry's and Frank Lampard's, you know they they speak very fondly of the players um, that were at the club when that when they first came into the team because there is a there is a bit of mentoring mentoring that goes on but that that's not exclusive to to my generation that goes throughout the whole of football. Yeah, and funnily enough, looking at you, you mentioned Lampard and Terry. Terry is quite incredible as a mentor. He's, uh, what he's doing, showing that an, an attitude in certain areas that people don't understand. People, yeah. He's one of the most misunderstood footballers I've ever come across in my life. Um, if you watch him with fans, if you watch him at any get-together when he's with everyone, he has got one of the most incredible personalities I've ever met in a game. Now, considering my politics, my background, what I've worked in, you do not expect to hear that from me. Mm-hmm. Half, you don't. And but I've I've watched him closely. Um, yeah, he's a pretty special individual in a lot of areas, and he yeah. he will pass a lot of incredibly positive things on. Uh, absolutely, and it's it's funny because he 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 does you know that that public image of him and <laughs> and some of the baggage shall we say that he's collected along the way. Um, it's 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 such a shame for many reasons, of course. But one quick example: I remember I was out in Hong Kong with with the team a few years ago, and we were hosting a, a family to to go and sort of you know meet a few of the players. And the the daughter of, of this family was probably about eight, and um, and I said to her, look, if you get to meet one player as they go to get on the bus, I'll, I'll you know who would it like to, who would you like to meet? And she, you know, toss up between Frank and John. And so I said, well, OK, well, look, we'll see if we can get you to meet both of them. Anyway, John came out and I introduced, um, introduced them. And then he, as he was just about to go, he paused, opened his wash bag and he took his, he had his captain's armband from this pre, pre-season friendly. And um, he, he obviously realised he had it in, the, in, his, in his wash bag, took it out, uh, called her back, put it on her arm and said, you're Chelsea captain now. You know, and that was with there no cameras around. There's no, you know, uh, no publicity, but it was just a wonderfully thoughtful gesture. And that girl, I mean, that would have absolutely that would have made her life. Yeah. <laughs> She'll never forget I've, that. I've actually seen you him know? do that more than I've seen any other professional football mm. in my life. Yeah, that sort of thing is absolutely him, and he does it when no one's watching all the time. Mm. I watched him surreptitiously quite a few times. It's very unusual, very understood. It, it, you don't anyway. Let's not go about JT all the time. Let's remember the fact that they weren't all good guys. I can't stand that guy, Frank Lampard. Honestly, what about what about him? Everything about him, right? Brilliant at football, damn good looking as well. He'll probably end up being the next Bond because he's going to get to Hollywood or somewhere. Like that. He scores more goals than anyone else from midfield, and you can feel a bitterness coming out of me here. He's the nicest guy you just about could ever meet, and I've got to know him a little bit as well. But the real reason is he won Player of the Year three times for Chelsea. 
and he's the only player I ever do it. I only won it twice, and I'm gutted. So I'll never well, forget him. Did you have to have to hand him the record? Pat, he won it three times. You won it twice. I haven't won it at all. So, <laughs> no, he, uh, I you think know, you were playing. You can, you can share one team. of those with me if you I want. I think your team is a wee bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll grant you that, Graham. Don't worry. I actually do that with kids. Sometimes kids come to me and go, "Who did you play for?" And you say Chelsea. And you say, really? I yeah, I was playing your twice, and like the jaw hits the floor, and I'm thinking. <laughs> We didn't have Didier Drogba. We had Doug Rugby. <laughs> <laughs> Big Doug's a lovely guy, by the way. But I tend not to leave that last line in. <laughs> ah, very good. Graham, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak to you today and uh, really enjoyed the chat. Um, your friendship with Pat, I'm sure, will live on beyond this podcast. I think he owes you a dinner now. So Definitely do. You can look forward to that in, whenever he's <laughs> no, in London. It's, it's fantastic. I, it's, it's always great to be uh, to be on the radio with Pat and... and uh, I think we could, go on, we could go on for hours and oh, hours that, and that's hours. The problem. But, that's uh, why they don't let uh, us on together very often, because it could go on forever. <laughs> uh, this, look, the, more, the more stories, the better here. Graham, thanks very much. To, uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and wish you best, best of luck in the future. Speak to you soon, Graham. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was Graham the Soul. That was really enjoyable. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, again, it's you end up talking about kind of, kind of serious things with Graham, because he's a serious-minded guy, um, intelligent guy. He's learned so much. Um and it's funny because it's one of the things you need to learn, one of the big things I learned going along was, uh, Graham was just a kid, he was almost a blank sheet when I first met him. Um, but don't treat him like a kid, you know, at all. You know, not, not even at the start. Slightly at the start I did a little bit, you know, just yeah, introducing ideas and things like that. But no, uh, he really learned quickly and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what he became, he's become. In so many areas, apart from anything else, just a great footballer, but a, a good guy, a really good guy. Um, and you asked, you've asked me to bring a friend on. Um, it's not easy for me because I didn't have that many close friends in football. A, a lot of guys I liked, a lot of guys, and I meet them regularly. I'll meet uh, this weekend, I'll meet four or five. Um, but we won't go for dinner, you know, I, we won't go to the same gig or whatever. Um, yeah, there was probably less than a handful in an entire career and I played 800 games over 800 professional football games you know so it's kind of weird so you've kind of and you can kind of see why it would be quite unusual for football the people I'd gone with yeah big time but like as soon as he started speaking I think that it was it was sort of apparent to me why there was a connection between between the two of you as different as you are you definitely have similar approaches. Well, I, I, I wind him up mercilessly saying that I completely and utterly, he is basically a shadow of me. And uh, <laughs> I've showed him exactly what to do, what to read, what to do. And it's a wind up. And a couple of times, a couple of people have written it as if it's like, like real. And I'm going, no, no, it's a joke. You've got to say it's a joke. <laughs> it's, it's his own person. He's got his own strong views and things. Um, but it, it, it's interesting that we have been like share a few things over the years. And you made a great comment before about, do you talk about it? You actually don't need to. You just kind of know. Yeah. There is an, an inherent sense. Before we got Graham on, and Pat, we appreciate you taking the time as well. We won't keep you much longer, but there was um, obviously Tranmere after Everton, and you were, you were actually just telling us as we were getting Graham on the line about a potential move to Turkey, or at least yeah, I know. I was, I was, when I was leaving Everton, I was either uh, Tranmere Rovers or Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> easy decision to make. That's, um, that's the title of your fourth autobiography there, classic. if you want. It's a classic. It's, oddly enough, that looks like it's going to happen now. Oh, um, yeah? So I've, I've been writing a lot recently. Oh, very good. Uh, Lastly, year or two. Uh, it, it'll be odd. Don't worry. It'll be strange. <laughs> uh, it won't be like a normal football biography, <laughs> trust me. Um, so, uh, but I went over there and spoke to them, and it was a temptation. Lots of reasons. I made it the right decision for the right reasons. I'd been at Tranmere on loan for a month, and I realised, wow, they're a good side. And the manager had basically said to me, my first manager at Chelsea had said, go out and kill the opposition, destroy them, do your thing. I trust you to understand the game. You've got great game knowledge. When you need to defend, you can defend. And uh, I was a manager who just gave me complete scope, scope and freedom. Now, that's easy to say that. It's very rare. It's a wee bit less rare now. Teams are playing four, two, three, ones, and you've got three attackers. That's fine. I, I grew up, and many of us grew up, all the way through, halfway through the Premier League, it was four four twos and four three threes, and nobody playing in between lines. It used to drive me nuts. I mean, playing in the dark ages where people didn't do that. I mean, I never used to say. I mean, everyone will say to you now, "Oh, it must must been great in the good old days." I used to think, "Well, I did enjoy it, but it was quite Neanderthal summer of football." Yeah. Um, for the first time over the last four or five years, I've thought this would suit me better. I would do better in the current game than I would have done in my my time, because of the technical type of player I was. 
And, uh, you know, I, I kind of look at that and think, well, no, at, at Tranmere, I was given freedom. He said, look, okay, do what you need to do. You know where to defend, you know where to cover, just destroy, just go and create. And it was just the loveliest thing. I had four years there, five years nearly there, and probably, arguably, the best football I ever played. So I was playing my best football at Tranmere. And that's weird, to have played at the top level with Chelsea, then four years with Everton, getting to cup finals. I was the best player I'd ever been at Tranmere, without a doubt. So, why? Yeah. <laughs> exactly why. The game had changed. The game had moved. It was a lot of power plays in the Premier League. People sell the Premier League as the start of football. Um, the first four or five years of the Premier League, I thought it stunk. I thought they were awful. Um, it was just a lot of big, strong guys running really fast. And people will go, oh, what about Man United? Yeah, they were the ones that were winning it. Have a look at the rest of them. I thought it was, I thought it was rank. And I, didn't, I actually didn't watch a lot of football then because I thought it was so awful. Did it turn uh, you off a move to Istanbul at any point? Uh, no, 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 that was purely because Tranmere wasn't doing that. They were doing something different. Uh, they were wider viewed about it. They wanted to attack. They wanted to be open. They wanted to be, you know, what a pep Guardiola would do now. I'll tell you a wee story. John, Neil, uh, John, John King, the manager who died recently, um, he once said to us, this was hilarious, we were sitting in the dressing room, it was me, Tam Coyne, uh, John Aldridge, you know, a lot of decent players, we had a lot of internationals in that dressing room, we kept on just missing out on promotion in the Premier League every year for four years. The manager came in, he was very unusual, and he said to us one day, right, we're leaving two up, um, actually we'll leave three up for a corner this week. Um, actually, do you know what, we'll leave four up for the corner, <laughs> the two wingers and the two strikers, you stay... Actually, Kenny Irons, you stay up as well. We're going to leave five up for a corner. And all of us are looking at each other going, oh, he's lost in that. He's absolutely lost it. Because he was a very unusual character. Loved him, but a strange character. And we took the mickey. And he went out of the dressing room and we went, right, we're ignoring that. And we just done our own thing. See, about two years ago, Guardiola left five up at a corner. Uh, And I just thought, oh my God, we laughed at him. So the the, the reason was, I, I moved there for the right reasons. Purity of the football, love of the football, the enjoyment of it. Um, so, oddly enough, I'm kind of remembered for the first seven, eight, nine years of my career, you know, in England with Chelsea and Everton. In actual fact, the best years were kind of lost. Not lost, they were they were loved by me. More obscure to the rest of us. they were more obscure to everyone else because the Premier League had gone a different direction. And then, I, I suppose, after your playing career, it took you a while, but you get back to Scotland eventually. And yeah, I, I kind of wanted to go. And when I was at Tranmere, uh, an interesting thing that happened, I was, um, uh, was the second year at Tranmere, and Bolton, I think, were in the top le- level, and uh, their assistant manager got in touch, phoned up one night and said, look, we want to buy you. And I said, look, first of all, that'd be great to get to the Premier League, but I'm chairman of the union. You've got to go through the right channels <laughs> these sure. days. So I went home that night and told my wife and said, look, you know, Bolton's going to make a bid. And she said, well, do you really want to? You're happy here. It's, it's joyous here. Bolton are getting beat most weeks in the Premier League anyway. Tranmere and Bolton don't go on for a kick-off. Mm. Um, and we talked about it. And I just thought, no, no. So about a week and a half later, the manager called me at his office and said, right, Pat, there's been a bid. Uh, I promise to tell you. They're offering enough. Uh, if you want to go, you can go. And I said, well, stop you before we go any further. I'm not interested. Uh, here at Tranmere, loving it here. Love the players we've got. I think we get a great team. I think we can get us to the Premier League, and I want to get us there. I'll just go back out to training. He went, yeah, okay, on you go. And as I walked out, he said, "Do you want to know who it was?" And I went, "Oh yeah, who was it?" He said, "Celtic." <laughs> you stupid get, Nevin. What the hell? So the ch- the chance was there for a moment that I could have went to Celtic. Anyway, long story. It's, yeah, if it's not for you, won't goodbye you. Moved up back up to Scotland. Had a year come on, a brilliant year. Some of my greatest friends. Had I not brought um, Graham on it would have been Dylan Kerr one of my great friends that I met at Kilmarnock and we ended up third in the league that year mm. which was brilliant and then I was at Motherwell two years as player chief exec and two years after that just as chief exec as well and it was an extraordinary thing to learn and curve that as well so to cover all those bases knowing about executive level knowing how to run a club being chairman of the union playing international football playing top level England Scotland um Add on to that all the what you learn about the running of football within all the committees, etc. Because you're on all those committees when you're chairman of the union and when you're chief executive. So my kind of background in all areas of the game 
except for the one that I, the two that I never wanted to do. I never wanted to be a manager and I never wanted to be a referee. So <laughs> for the same reasons, stupid job. Um, I can, it was nice to get that background of all sides of it. So when I went into the media, people often say, oh, lost to the game just doing media. In actual fact, I wanted to be able to give you, people in the media ask a question, well, I'll give you an insight because I've seen every side of it. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I get involved in the media. Pat and Evan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it. and a bit longer than we all thought. <laughs> a little bit longer. Before that. There was no way I was stopping you when you were in full flow there. I, yeah, felt, like, no. I felt like Graham Lassau in those training sessions way back when, you know. <laughs> you don't get a bit. But it's been an absolute pleasure as ever and lovely to be over again.